Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from West Michigan, where we like the oil spill so much, we decided to have one of our own. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I thought you were going to say that where Detroit is America's motor city, Grand Rapids is America's motor oil city. Yeah, except that's really Kalamazoo where the spill was. Oh, well, yeah. Still. But they stopped it. They did stop it before it got to Lake Michigan, right? Which was the big fear. I like my fish oily. It it was still um, quite the disaster. Nothing really compared to the disaster in the Gulf, but. uh, Underachievers. Yeah. We try. Michigan sucks at many things, like employment <laughs> figures. We suck at even. We can't even. God, we can't even spill oil. Right? We can't even ruin the environment. They stopped it up right before it even got to the freaking lake. Oh dear. In this episode, we're going to be talking a lot of women's issues. We've got a God thinks like you. Um, we'll also take a look at the barbaric practice of female genital mutilation. We've got some props and a stranger than fiction. But first. This just in, no matter how much money the Mormon church tosses at it, bigotry is still unconstitutional. Yay. A rare win. A big win. It's nice to have good news to talk about for once on this show. Especially in an episode where we're also going to talk about female genital mutilation. In California, Judge Vaughn Walker, who, by the way, is a George H.W. Bush appointee and a Republican, has overturned the um, California constitutional ban on gay marriage known as Proposition 8. Uh, His ruling was remarkable. I don't know how much of the ruling you've actually read, but this is a victory not only for proponents of gay marriage, but proponents of science. The reason I followed it is because in my class sometimes we talk about things like the actual research on any differences in gay families versus straight families right. and such. We've talked about that in the program before. And so his ruling, by all accounts, was very fact-based mm-hmm. in regards to the arguments that were made, primarily that gays uh, aren't, you know, as effective parents or that the child children need a, a male and a female figure. All those were, were the, some of the empirical arguments attempted by the Prop 8 people. Right. And so his ruling, therefore, was based on saying that there's no evidence for this factually. Well, mm-hmm. to be fair, too, I think you're overselling it to say that they attempted arguments because yeah, they, they really the Prop 8 people had two witnesses versus, I want to say, 16, 16 witnesses for the opponents of Prop 8 who were leaders in in the fields that they spoke on uh, about parenting and uh, gay marriage and, you know, all of the, the social ramifications, the psychological ramifications. They had a brilliant panel of experts who came in as witnesses. The proponents of Proposal 8 had two people, both of whom fell apart under cross-examination. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely amazing. They could not offer a single bit, and this is this is from the ruling, they could not, not offer a single bit of evidence of why gay marriage should be illegal. It's democratic. Yeah. Defense rests. Part of their case was that, uh, quote, the central purpose of marriage in California and everywhere else is to promote the naturally procreative sexual relationship and to enhance them into unstable, enduring unions for the sake of producing and raising the next generation. Sounds a lot like Robert, uh, P. George. Robert P. George. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Natural law. Yeah, it's out there. Our good buddy. Well, the other side pointed out, obviously, how in the world will gay marriages actually hurt that? If anything, yes. gays are already having children, they're either adopting or conceiving. So this ban would actually go against the state interest in preventing them from having stable two-parent family homes. Um, So... The opponents of Prop 8 question them saying, if the state's interest in marriage is procreative, uh, then how is permitting same-sex marriage going to impair or adversely affect that interest? Here's the council's reply. It's not a legally relevant question. (laughs) 
Then they were pushed on it, and here's their second reply. Your Honor, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> did somebody hand them a, a football to punt? Because but that's that what they is just honestly the strength of their arguments here, and, and really what they went in. And I don't know if they were if they were cocky or if they literally just could not get anyone who who could present evidence. But they went in with the argument that because the people of California voted for Proposition Eight, by the way, by a very slim margin, it was yeah, a fifty-two percent majority, about half a million votes, which in California is not terribly many, that because the people voted for it, this should be the law. Well, you know what? There's still the Constitution to deal with. If you had polled people in the 1960s uh, in America or specifically in Virginia, whether or not white people should be able to marry black people, a majority of people would have said no. Or integration like Brown v. Board because yes. both of those went against the democratic zeitgeist at the time. I mean clearly what, I think what the people in the know are saying is, is that because like we mentioned the decision is written in such an empirical way, mm-hmm. it's targeted for – the judge probably did this knowing it was going to work its way up eventually to the yes. Supreme Court where it will probably be decided by Justice Kennedy. Yeah, absolutely. Swing vote. And so uh, – And Justice Kennedy likes him some facts. Yeah, because if you remember the Lawrence v. Texas thing about sodomy law in Texas, yep. his ruling was, uh, was based similarly on there's no evidence that uh, that homosexuality isn't harming anybody there's what's the governmental interest in this and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. so this the context of this ruling is probably designed to persuade him they quoted uh, Kennedy they quite quoted a bit in which the decision great. the judge quoted yes. Kennedy and used the exact same rationales showing how Kennedy applies different constitutional tests that's, to these that's things. That's comforting. Our laws are yeah. decided by one guy. But, well, and that's the thing. I guess we should, especially for those uh, non-American listeners who aren't familiar with our Supreme Court, what happens next is it gets appealed to um, the circuit court, which will almost definitely uphold the decision of Judge Walker. It's a very liberal court. Hard to overturn when the way that he ruled. It's the way he ruled because he had 80 findings of fact in his decisions. And that's not findings of law, which can be disputed with, with counter precedent and that sort of thing. So it will likely be upheld. The proponents of Proposal 8 will likely appeal it. It will go to the Supreme Court where we have our four traditionally conservative judges, Roberts, Scalia. Thomas Scalia. Yeah. And then we have four presumably dependably liberal judges, including the recently inducted Kagan. By the way, three women on the Supreme Court for the first time in history. And no Protestants. And no Protestants. And what, six Catholics or something? Something ridiculous like that. It's the high birth rate. And then there's Justice Kennedy, who's kind of in the middle of everything. But if they come to him, these proponents of Prop 8, the way they came to Judge Walker, he will laugh them out of court because they have no case and he well, will yeah. not sit for that. That's it, that's why I'm so optimistic about this is that a lot of people are are – happy about this decision, but they're saying, oh, man, this might be bad timing. I mean, if this goes the to Supreme the Supreme Court, Court it's the very Supreme conservative Court. right now, you know, Catholic dominated, as we said before. But it's since Kennedy is the swing vote and since this is so tailored to his decisions, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually looking pretty good. Other people have, have uh, expressed reservations, not because they think it's a bad thing, but because of, if you recall, gay issues have been used before to gin up conservative turnout yes. at well, like 2004. True. There was a debate about uh, the Defense of Marriage Act. The issue was used to, to drum up fears, fundraising, turnout at votes. Yeah. Uh, at, much at like the places. abortion issue is always used. Yeah, this will yeah. play well into conservative hands during the midterm election. Well, and of course what's going to happen, best case scenario, inside of a, a year or so, this could go to the Supreme Court, they could rule on it, and gay marriage could be legal in the United States. You know, two years ago, I wouldn't have said this would uh, this would be happening uh, this decade. It's, it's great. I mean, in the end, Proposition 8 might turn out to have been a great thing. Absolutely. Because it led to this. Also related to that, props to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. Walker placed a temporary stay on the ruling. Right. And so both sides had to file uh, a, a case whether or not the stay should be suspended or whether it should be extended. And, and They had uh, to file by this Friday. So yep, I, and, I, the, and the governor jumped in yes. uh, for the suspending this. He didn't refer to that as judgment day, did he? In his, in his statement, he said, The administration believes that the, the public interest is best served by permitting the court's judgment to go into effect. Doing so is consistent with California's long history of treating all people and their relationships with equal dignity and respect. He uh, later added, Do it now! Do it! <laughs> Just do it! <laughs> 
He's uh, who knew he was such a uh, fan of the girly man that he uh, so famously slandered when uh, he first got in office. Hey, you know what? It's better late than never. Right? Well, and that and he that sees the writing on the wall. Now he's getting on the right side. To be yeah, fair, he referred to Democrats as girly men and not uh, <laughs> not homosexuals. But and quite uh, frankly, the Democrats are girly men. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you take Stop that insult seriously, why do you right? say that? <laughs> Have you guys seen the religious rights reaction to this? Oh, it's great. Coral Ridge Ministries uh, saying, uh, with the court turning traditional values into a form of hate actionable (laughs) under the law, we are seeing the criminalization not only of Christianity but of the foundational values of civilization itself. Wow. (laughs) I I love that. It's so catastrophic. In referencing the Loving versus Virginia, which was the case that made um, interracial marriage legal – Ultimately, I, were there people coming out and saying things like that then? I just remember I that the, the, I don't the, know the judge in the case that was eventually struck down used a religious argument for the separation of he the did. races. Yes, so that he said God wouldn't have met people to be together. That's why he put them on separate continents: the yellow people, the brown people, yeah. the white people. This yeah. is the judge making this argument. The, yeah. Uh, the American Family Association. Oh, love them. Yeah. They're the ones who came out with that documentary, Speechless, that we spent time debunking. You know, they're one of the most aggressive anti-homosexual groups out there. Right. Um, they they question this ruling because Judge Walker is a practicing homosexual. So they say. I, I, I'm not <clears throat> sure if that's true or not. It, well, yeah, true or not, they say he should have recused him from the case uh, because yes. he – yeah. Which, of course, they would have argued if, if the <laughs> Prop 8 would have been upheld and he would have been a heterosexual judge. I'm sure that they would have right, allowed the, right. the uh, Ted Olson and the people that were against Prop 8 just to argue, well, he's a practicing heterosexual. Yeah, so yeah we, that's, you know, that's what Ed Brayton said. It's like that is completely ridiculous. You could yeah. just as well spin that the other way or, or he said, should Thurgood Marshall uh, recuse himself from civil rights cases? Right. Should Christians uh, recuse them? themselves from any church state cases. That's what Scalia this is, does. This is just no. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, the arguments are they're, are they're really reaching. And there's um, a guy who wrote a opinion piece. It was printed in the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, I think it originally came from the National Review and his argument is that well, if Judge Walker thinks all the facts are on his side and he uses facts like it's a dirty word, um, then they should be able to issue Proposition 9 to the people of California and they should vote on that. Because, you know, you can keep on voting on people's civil rights. Yeah, exactly. Should Puerto Ricans be allowed to decrease my property values by moving next door? Let's vote. <laughs> that was a, that was a uh, John Stewart, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I caught it. Yeah, that was a good one. Yes. Excellent. Now that we've gotten the um, happy news out of the way. Yeah. This, this coming from The Guardian. British girls undergo the horror of genital mutilation despite tough laws. Female circumcision will be inflicted on up to 2,000 British schoolgirls during the summer holidays, leaving brutal physical and emotional scars, yet there have been no prosecutions against the practice, reports The Guardian. The Guardian article, I believe, had a video attached to it. Did either yeah, of you watch the I video? I watched the first minute and turned it off. No, nope. no, I don't. Couldn't do it. I don't watch Couldn't that. do it. Um, and the disturbing thing, at the end of the article here, they list some facts about uh, female genital mutilation. For those of you who think this isn't uh, it's so prevalent, um, you know, it's it actually is much more common than we would like to think. Uh, they say here that female genital mutilation, also known as cutting, because what they do is is cut off the clitoris from the – and, At least the outer portion of the clitoris. And in some cases, they in some cultures, they do the labia minora, and in some cases, they actually stitch it. They, shut yes. To be yeah. opened later by the husband. Or, or stitch it to leave just a small hole available, which says a lot about the men involved in yeah, um, that That's the most societies. extreme practice. Yes. Uh, 80% of them are just uh, the, the – just, just. Oh, just like losing it. the yeah. clitoris. Okay. It is a worthy detail to say there's different degrees of Certainly. this, but I'm not trying to minimize yeah. it in any sort of way by doing it. It's only 20% of the cases, uh, but it is really graphic where they, they sew up uh, the vulva I, and it you know, it heals. So it, it basically scar material forms yes. there. The opening is is just enough for urine and blood to pass, sometimes which, not even. Which makes giving birth very difficult. This is practiced in 28 African countries, according to The Guardian here. The prevalence rates range 
from 5% in Zaire all the way up to a horrifying 98% of girls in Somalia. 98%. As if Somalia, uh, they didn't have anything else to worry about. Then. Yeah, right. Um, it also takes place among ethnic groups in the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, yeah. Canada, the U.S., and New Zealand. And, of course, in yeah, the U.K. It's not as prevalent in Asian or Middle Eastern countries, but, yeah, it's, it's all over. I, I found it fascinating that until the 1950s, this was practiced in England and the U.S. as treatment for lesbianism – Masturbation, yeah. How about that? hysteria, eps- epilepsy, and other, quote, female deviances. Yeah, how about that? Unbelievable. It, it, which, it's such an archaic ritual, it's hard to believe that it's still practiced. Then again, male circumcision is equally as archaic and is practiced uh, even more prevalently than uh, female circumcision. This particular Guardian article, though, highlights uh, the fact that these are British schoolgirls. This is not some third world country. Many who are not made aware or or properly told what's going to happen to them. And Mm -hmm. the parents decide to go on a summer holiday to go visit wherever the grandparents live. Where are we going? You're going to go on vacation back to the homeland. Oh, yay. What are we going to do? We'll tell you when you get there. They're told they're going to a party, a cutting party. Mm -hmm. And when they get there... They're forced to the ground. They're held down and held and down by, by like eight people sometimes. Well, they have to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they go to town. I mean, the, the, the story they use is of this 12-year-old Jamila. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. She's reading Harry Potter, having no idea what's about to happen. Uh, and then she's 20 years old now and she's recounting this whole experience. But it's it's brutal. Often, too, the instruments that are used are not properly sterilized. Uh, right. Jamila's parents paid extra money so that the cutter would use a clean razor. I've seen this even uh, in the in case of, of boys with initiation. Sometimes I've looked at anthropological videos where they have like the tribal rites where the boys have to do their rite of passage. And, sure. and it's the same thing. They're often like, oh, they, they're like the... The person has to pause now because they need a new razor blade in the middle of it, and the kid's like trying to stand there. You know, it's it's, uh, for the boys. It's like you know, but they frame it to these girls as being this is your tradition that's been handed down, and you can't be a woman in our clan or tribe. You know, your your mom did it, your grandma did it, your aunts did it. So step up. Well, of course, the idea is to take away sexual pleasure from the women so that they won't be promiscuous. While it decreases sexual pleasure for the women, it's supposed right. to enhance sexual pleasure for the men. I don't know why. Which, of course, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, Those are some of the reasons. I mean, some of the other reasons why it's done, especially in Africa, some of the justifications that are used are just – they'd be laughable if the practice yeah. wasn't so awful. Notions that if the baby, if the baby upon birth touches the clitoris – it might become hydroencephalitis. <laughs> they might get hydroencephalitis from that. Jeez. Or the baby touches the clitoris magically. The woman's milk uh, will go sour and poisonous. It, ridiculous stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, a large factor is that it's supposedly aesthetically more pleasing. You yeah, can nothing find like these, scar tissue. Well, you can a- find these <sighs> awful summaries of men looking at the clitoris as basically a female penis. And they don't want their penis touching another penis. And, you know, that's uh, often oh, the, so there's the homophobia mixed in with misogyny. When the argument that's often made by articulate proponents who are westernized uh, like immigrants from from Africa, I've seen like women go on the TV, the ones who defend this, know that they, those arguments often won't stand if they're absurd. But the argument that they do make is that this is our cultural tradition – People aren't considered females in the tribe unless they have this, so don't mess with us. Uh, it's similar to the arguments that are often made for now for like circumcision in, in boys and that it's, it's our religious and cultural markings. She won't be accepted or marriageable if she doesn't have this. So right. all you – hey, all you Western liberal you know, feminists, back off because you're interfering with our cultural tradition. This is our culture. Yeah. The, the only part of that that's at all compelling to me is that – There's good reason to believe that just passing laws in some of these countries – and I'm talking countries where this is a very dominant practice, where we have like Like upwards of 90% of women are taking it, that just passing laws against it doesn't really do a lot of good. Right. Um, So what what people need is education campaigns, bringing people out there to teach – a lot of times the women and the girls, they have grown up with this custom for so long 
that they don't know many of the side effects like sterility, frequent urinary tract infections, yes. obviously a lot of pain during, problems during with menstruation. Conception. Yes, yeah. uh, all of these things. A, a lot of them don't know that it actually comes from to the, the practice. extent that some of these girls are now volunteering for this. That it's not all being tricked and held down and having it done to them. Some of them truly believe that this is what they what they should be doing. It's yeah. a, a way to fit in. That they're actually choosing to do it. Mm-hmm. For all those reasons, then it's very hard to just use political pressure. The law is not going to. So, it. so by re-educating, saying, "Hey, look, this is why you're having all these problems. It's related to this practice." Uh, and providing them alternatives. That that has seemed to have been much more effective. Also what they do, they host alternative rites of passage. Uh, that's part of the strong connection to this, as you said, Luke. Uh, it's, it's, part of, it's, it's a custom. This is part of becoming a woman. Right. And the girls are showered with gifts. I mean, it's a big – the parents are all proud. It's like a bar mitzvah. The extended family comes out for this. I mean, this is, this is supposed to be a really great momentous occasion. And so a lot of them don't want to give up that aspect of it by training them to have these alternative celebrations and, and you know, giving that other option. That seems to have been effective, too, in, in fighting this practice. So I, I'm, I don't agree with the cultural relativists that, oh, this is their culture, so we should just yeah. we should just ignore this practice that is that is awful and very much causes a lot of pain and suffering. But I do think there are smart ways to go about ending it. And there are other ways that won't be as effective. And if they perceive Western outsiders just coming in and trying to force force this upon them, uh, they're, they're going to get backlash. Yeah, they're not going yeah. to. Uh, they're not going to. Go they frame along with they it. frame it as uh, again another example of cultural imperialism. Right. That we're going to go and try to change their practices. And, and unfortunately, because of the the cultures where this takes place, women don't have much of a voice. It's not like there are women leaders who can stand up against this for the most part. And act for change. Well, the odd part is, is it has more support amongst women than it does men. Yeah, it's often the same with uh, with other practices like the veil and and, and burkas and things like sure. that too. That that they get women to argue for this and say that it's our choice because again, it's our tradition or that it actually protects women. They frame it more as a benevolent sexism right. that these practices yep. are are meant to protect girls right. and. Here, one study, uh, this was this and a bunch of other studies are referenced in the International Family Planning Perspectives Journal. A study of 300 polygynous Sudanese men, each who had one wife uh, who had been infibulated and one or more who had not. 266 expressed a definite sexual preference for the uninfibulated wife. An additional 60 said they had married a second uninfibulated wife because of the penetration difficulties they experienced with their first wife because of the scarred vaginal opening. Mm. Also, our fertility concerns infibulated women are almost twice as likely as other women to have lower fertility, uh, and they are more than twice as likely to be divorced because of that. Really? So here's you know the major justification saying, well, this is this is going to. Uh, this is making the woman more virginal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be – she's going to have her place as as a wife and be married and everything. And a, a baby lot, factory. A lot of them – yeah, it's ensuring we know the paternity of the child and all this stuff. You know, even this doesn't turn out to be true. A, right. lo- a lot of these wind- women end up infertile, 20 to 25 percent of the Which most extreme form. Which is a big chunk of the population. Yeah, and oftentimes they become divorced. So really you could go down all these – the list of all these reasons and except for the religious and the, the aesthetic ones, none of them, none of them hold up to the data. Well, this brings us right back to Proposition 8 though because you still – unfortunately, that hurdle of the religious beliefs, the, the cultural beliefs are the most difficult ones to change because they're not based on – Evidence. They're not based on the statistics that show this, this, and this happened. So, is is anything ever going to be compelling to them? Well, that's a that's another aspect of this. Is how closely tied to Islam is this? The Guardian article discussed uh, young Muslim girls. Many of these countries where this is practiced, they are majority Muslim. Right. Uh, I think countries. the assumption is that this is a, a Muslim practice. Not right. that all Muslims do it, of course, but that the people who do it tend to be Muslim. Now, there's a little truth to that and there's a little bit of falsehood to that as well. 
First of all, the Quran doesn't anywhere mandate or require female circumcision in any sort of way. Also, it does appear originally to be an African cultural practice. Uh, you can mm. find in, in Africa Christians, animists, uh, even one Jewish sect that do the practice. Prior to Islam? Well, I'm saying today. Oh, okay. But when you say it was a African cultural thing, is that before Islam or is that? I don't know. I've heard okay. conflicting data. The Guardian said that that uh, that the practice existed as early as the second century BCE. And that's what I was. Yeah, I've read other sources which say nobody knows when it started, and there's no good evidence. Sure. Like there's a bunch of debates as to where this practice began, and nobody okay. really knows for sure. Yeah. Uh, so so I don't know what the truth there is. So. It's not just Muslims that practice it. Why do some Muslims practice it? Well, there is a passage in the Hadith, and this is funny because this passage is used by both advocates of female genital mutilation and those who oppose it. So Wait, they, it's not possible to have scriptural arguments be ambiguous. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't have that in Christianity. No. It's in the Sunnah or the tradition of the prophet. The passage says, a woman used to perform circumcision in Medina. The prophet said to her, do not cut too severely as that is better for a woman and more desirable for a husband. Now, I, you can tell by that passage why it would be used by both sides. One right. is that the uh, the prophet is not forbidding the practice. It's not saying don't cut, just don't cut too uh, deeply. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, he seems to be forbidding a more extreme form of the practice. So how do they justify the more extreme forms of the practice, which are so prevalent in some Once of these again, one, one wishes that inspiration could be somewhat more detailed. Yeah. Yes, that would have been helpful. If, God's, if he's reciting the thoughts of God, you'd think he'd be like, you know. Well, and it's interesting to see the, the Muslim world going back and forth on this. Uh, there, there are many Muslim countries uh, like Iran, Turkey, and now most recently Egypt. Um, it used to be practiced quite a bit in Egypt, but now it isn't. There, there are many Muslim countries where this is not practiced at all. It's actually seen as un-Islamic. But then there are others, of course, who view it as Islamic. Going through the history, uh, there, there were several fatwas uh, by the, the Egyptian Fatwa Committee, where you can kind of see them bouncing back and forth on this. So in 1949, they issued a fatwa deciding that it was not a sin not to get circumcised. So they were allowing you okay. to opt out of the practice if you wanted. Although so, it's not usually your choice to be Right, there. of course. Yeah. It's, it's mostly the family's choice. Right. 1951, they stated that female circumcision is actually desirable. So maybe not required... But we should want this. It's preferable. Because yeah. it curbs nature. It stops the sexual drive of women. <sighs> they also said that medical concerns over the practice were irrelevant. They had to up that oh, in yeah, 1981. That, that certainly doesn't seem like a relevant thing when you're talking about <laughs> cutting off a part of someone's body. Yeah. Well, as they were faced with more and more information about how, yes, indeed, it is relevant. Yeah. In 1981, they had to clarify. And so the great sheikh of Al-Azhar, which is uh, one of the – better, more prestigious universities in the Islamic world, stated that parents must follow the lessons of Muhammad and not listen to the medical authorities. Why? Because medical authorities often change their mind. But Muhammad, of course, is the seal of the prophets. Uh, so parents must do their duty and have their daughters circumcised. So this, 81, we get a huge swing in favor of it again. Right. Finally, in 2007, after a series of court battles where it went back and forth, the final end ruling was that uh, it was it was banned completely. Oh. It's now made illegal. This is in Egypt? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, several clerics uh, finally drew the line and said in plain terms, look, this is an un-Islamic practice. If you do it, you are wrong. You are not following the religion. Of course, there are tons of other clerics who disagree with them. So in the official ruling in Egypt, yeah. at least, is is that it's wrong, but there are other clerics who support it. So a lot of uh, Islamic apologists are trying to say, no, this is a cultural practice. It's not a religious practice. And and the truth is, uh, it's it's both. Yeah, it right. depends. It, you know, Islam is not a monolithic religion. It depends yes. on what type of Islam you practice. And neither and one of those many, things. It, it is a required practice, and in and in many sects of Islam, it is not. Right. And in neither neither one of those things, whether it's a religious or a cultural practice, 
can you justify mutilating a person by well, saying, well, it's, it's our religion it's, or it's, it's, it's rele- our culture? It's relevant for those who are trying to protect Islam from oh, scrutiny. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. But th- we've seen before that often what happens is not that these negative things come directly from the religion, but what happens is in an indirect way, religion reinforces whatever is the cultural norm or yeah. the traditional uh, – the tradition uh, in the culture. And so it makes it more – any tradition – that's negative or that needs to be reformed sticky and it makes it harder to change. And so one right. of the roles of religion might not be the origin of any of these practices, but mm-hmm. it might simply be the unwillingness to change is linked to greater religious traditionalism. Right. You can't absolve religion just because there aren't direct quotes in the Quran that support this practice. Mm-hmm. How many indirect things in the Quran the obsession with the purity of the female, yeah. the subjugation you know, of women, viewing this it is as all... a, that females are virtually incapable of, you know, keeping their virginity for their husbands. Right. You know, it's it, it, all of this. The the overall sexual repression made it for many Muslims to see, hey, this is just an extension of what we already believe regarding the the female's role. Most of the support for this practice that I found, at least by Westerners, came from anthropologists. You could see why for scientific reasons why maybe they would want to keep objectivity. But it's interesting that when entering into the moral realm that many of them ins- insist on the same kind of well, methodological relativism that they use. Yeah, in, that's the in confusing thing to studies. me. What, what, what does an anthropologist have to say about the morality of something that, that's not their – Well, like, like Dwight, their job. Dwight Reed, for example – he he challenges he challenges people who criticize this saying, you know, you're just doing it from your own cultural perspective. You may say that pain is universal. So if you're a utilitarian, you may be trying to make a universal argument based on the suffering that the procedure causes. But he sure. says dentists cause pain. Surgeries cause pain. Are you fighting against those? Or he'll say when I don't it- get teeth removed <laughs> so I won't give people blowjobs. That's why I didn't even feel like these needed to be answered. I yeah. mean, they just they seem so absurd. Yeah, absurd right on the on its face. Uh, he said, you know, this is is this any different from breast augmentation, tattoos, or piercing? These are all aesthetic procedures. These all cause pain. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. Almost entirely all feminists across the world are unified in opposition to this practice. Of course, but you do have a handful of multicultural feminists. They call themselves who support the practice and say that this is just a different conception of womanhood. I want to read you one quote. Dr. Amadu, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago. She is actually a Westerner. She is an American, Mm -hmm. uh, but she uh, went back to Africa and had this procedure done when she was young, and she argues in favor of it. She says she's sad about our feminist sisters, quote, who insist on denying us this critical aspect of becoming a woman in accordance with our unique and powerful cultural heritage. It's difficult for me, considering the number of ceremonies I've observed, including my own, to accept that what appears to be expressions of joy and ecstatic celebrations of womanhood in actuality disguise hidden experiences of coercion and subjugation. Who's expressing joy? The female it's not family, the, it's the, not the one being members. mutilated. Yeah, this gets it. This gets at the heart of like, is something uh, truly chosen when a child or, or an adolescent is brought in when the female family members are encouraging it? True. A lot of feminists right. focus on well, the women want. Like I was mentioning before, women want this too because of benign. You know, it's to protect women or it's in their benefit. It's their female mm. traditions and the female family members are often the ones to put just as much pressure on the girl as the man but some can something said to be truly chosen when you are in a cultural milieu is, is it kind of a i had to go through this you can go through it too and, no, and justifying your own experience with it so it's part of that but also a marking of your tradition it would be you know, against, well, yeah. you know so like any other rite of passage you're not a member of the group unless you have that it's yeah kind of like the the Sundance and the man called horse type thing where you need the pattern of scars on your chest if you're going to be a warrior. And I just, you know, what conception of womanhood is this? I, I, I have a hard time understanding what it means to be a feminist and support 
a practice that is intended to curb women's sexual desire so that they are obedient to their husbands. And it, it's like being it, an African American member of the KKK. No, there's a certain ideological purism. Those feminists that do this are really the ones who consider themselves to be taking the tradition of, of and feminism of cultural relativity to its logical conclusion. And they would say that there are no universals. If they agree that there are some universal things, then they open up a certain doubt there to people come in to say, how, well, maybe there are gender differences that are universal. How can you be a cultural relativist feminist? Because, I mean, look at the it's first wave of feminism. That, that Western, Western women deserve to be liberated and, and all that. And our history Except why do they deserve to be liberated? Because dominance. their tradition was to be subjugated and to not be able to vote and to be treated as property. So that's their culture. Aren't we overthrowing the culture? Right. That's that's I, you know, one of the problems with this kind of kind with of all relativistic isolationist models of yeah. cultural relativism is is the we ignore the fact that there is cross cultural contact between many cultures and we do influence each other's ethical outlooks already. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we ignore the fact that internally within a culture they evolve and they change over time. Many times the seed of that change comes from realizing there are other ways to live. Yes. That there are other opportunities out there. Which you think so, anthropologists would understand. This is why Starfleet has issued the Prime Directive. <laughs> <laughs> we have Starfleet for a reason, guys. I just hope you That's remember right. that. Yeah. Keep your eye on the ball here. The one thing that the cultural relativists are doing are sensitizing us to how we can sometimes go in and just, you know, draw the line and try to force political pressure, you know, right. complete zero tolerance, criminalize it and use use the law to the greatest extent, you know, where there might be better strategic ways. They're viewing this from the lens of like other types of cultural imperialism where the British Empire would go in and westernize exactly. everybody or like sure. the United States try to take the Native American kids and yes. cut their hair and teach them, them English. Right. Yes. So they view this as a logical extension of that tradition as in any type of intervention right. is imperialism. There are smart ways and, and bad ways to do this. Mm -hmm. Get a bunch of white missionaries to try to force them to do it. Eh, maybe not so wise. Educate local women who have performed these, these ceremonies That's in the, the past and have now gone against them. Yeah, that yep. might be a better way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Create change within the culture. So in keeping with our discussion about um, religion – and the suppression of women, we bring you this God Thinks Like You. What is the effect of religion on attitudes towards women? Is there, in fact, a overall relationship where any type of religion is bad for women, uh, or is it just the extreme cases? Uh, and so a lot of the, the things that you look at in the literature are effects of things like patriarchal attitudes or traditional mm -hmm. gender roles. In that case, there is some evidence that definitely for fundamentalist religion, but even for mainstream religion, that people who are more religious tend to have more traditional gender role attitudes. They may not go out there and, you know, have witch burnings, but they tend to view women as being more gender – women and men as being gender stereotyped. Even with with very liberal religious, well, that's people? where it gets. That's where the debate comes in because there is a debate within the religious community between the traditionalists and the, I guess you call them Christian feminists. Uh, even within evangelical community, there is a debate about the proper role of things like scripture. Hmm. So some of the one of the studies I looked at actually looked at the debate within evangelical communities where they have, and there's a lot of literature. We've talked about some of these things in terms of like child rearing on the show before, but mm -hmm. things like focus on the family and the American Family Association and these, the, what what types of manuals or advice do they give for marriage and family issues? Because focus on the family primarily doles out to an impressive base of people, child and family advice. Mm -hmm. And part of their advice deals with how, what should the role of spouses be vis-a-vis -vis each other. One of the articles I read by, uh, by John Bartkowski, uh, his, uh, his article is called Debating Patriarchy, Discursive Disputes Over Spousal Authority Among Evangelical Commentators. He went through and looked at some of the most popular manuals to, uh, to see, to analyze the content, to see do they actually promote uh, you know, negative attitudes towards wives and have them <coughs> submit to husbands. And what he found was that there's two general themes. And one is there's a lot of discussion about the scripture, about you know the passages in the Bible that 
explicitly say women should be submissive to the husbands. Right. And so the traditionalists take that ball and run with it. Now, the feminists come back and say, but there's just as many passages talking about mutual submission or that there's mm-hmm. an equal but but complementary role, equal but yet not really equal. And the other thing is that within – this isn't biblical, but a lot of evangelicals hold different gender attitudes Overall, that is, they don't base it really necessarily on God says so, but they just think that men and women should play different roles. Sort of a, a sexism that we might call benevolent. That that women, oh, they're just as equal to men, but they have. But they do these gifts. things better than other than men do. They have intuition. You have logic. Versa, they yeah. have emotion. You have. They're you know, really, really good at making children and raising those children and managing a household. Whereas men are better at having jobs. Can I let me read you a passage from just to, so you can get a flavor of what what evangelicals are reading? These are this is taken from some of the the manuals like uh, from Dobson and Tim LaHaye. This is actually one called um, "You Can Be the Wife of a Happy Husband," and the author's name is D- Danan Cooper. No, no, oh my God. no, really, this is entertaining. <laughs> she says that the, the, our, the argument here is – Cooper's argument is that there is – and this is, sounds paradoxical, but there's freedom to – this is a catchphrase they often use. There's freedom found in submission, in wifely submission. Yeah. Isn't that Islam's slogan? Uh, I thought that was, there is, we come full circle here. I thought that was BDSM. The but. book says uh, oh, the God. true seeds for women's liberation, I'm using air quotes here, is let go and relax. You can enjoy the freedom of knowing that along with the right to make some decisions, your husband carries the responsibility for consequences of his decisions. So in other words, they argue that it's actually better not to be in the hot seat because the then you has. don't have to handle you the consequences of it. the decision. Let him do that. With, he can negotiate with God. And so they actually argue that this spirit of submission, which is the catchphrase they often use, is actually ultimately will yield benefits for women. They'll be more satisfied. Uh, and there's stories in these manuals that women actually uh, benefit from having their husband take charge. Or and here's you the odd thing: you have to think for yourself. Let you him do it. Here's the odd: who's uh, the chicken and the egg thing? They actually encourage women to help their husband take charge. Hmm. That is, the women should step <laughs> wow. up. Take the role in telling their husband, you have to take charge, sir. Um, so that's one theme in, in these manuals, you know, and there's like Tim LaHaye we've talked about from his series of Left Behind books. But yeah. Tim and Beverly LaHaye have also written a lot of these guides that are popular bestsellers where they, again, encourage women to let the husband take the lead. And there's a to lot be of fair, sp- he did the writing and she just sat there and, and brought him She submitted him to his word yeah. processing abilities. Yeah. That within the evangelical community, like I mentioned before, there is a, an alternative or a rearguard action by Christian feminists who argue against that by saying – Yes, the Bible says that there's submission, but it should be a mutual submission and that, that both partners have a role to play. Now, again, we might see their seeds of – You can pull s- proof texts to support that, but they're, they're more rare. Than- well, I, I was reading there's – there's an article in Christianity Today lately by um, the author's name. was She's a uh, – Jaina Chapman Gates. She was actually an advisor to – she was President Bush's envoy to Sudan. But she is an evangelical and she talks about – she wrote in Christianity Today that she goes to these Bible classes and there's often a scripture debate between her – feminist and the other more traditionalist and they trundle out the ones that we see all the time like Paul and in and, and Proverbs that talks about the women of folly and the um, uh, women submit yourselves to the women husband. submit to your yeah. husbands. Those yeah. sorts of, of things. In Second Timothy that, uh, that women shouldn't have any role. They should be quiet in church. Right. So these are the verses that get batted right. back and forth like a tennis match within Bible circles that the most often men or traditional women argue in favor that these things show clearly a scriptural basis is for submission of women, whereas the more uh, the non-traditional or the more feminist Christians argue that there are verses that show that husbands should also submit to the wives in different ways. And so, again, this is a form of benevolent sexism because they say that there's just different roles to be played, but nobody's in charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they, they fight back and forth with that. What I found amusing, though, is that she – let me read a passage from her article here that she said um, – uh, she's talking about the Bible studies that they say scripture that the men reminded me is inerrant. So when we came to passages I found confusing, such as women will be saved through childbearing, I was left without answers. And so she goes on to say that she just merely interpreted them wrong. Many people run from any consideration of the Bible when they find such a biblical passage. And I counsel them to slow down and try out several different perspectives on the issues that trouble them. That way they <laughs> Keep will Keep rereading till it makes some kind of sense. That way they can continue to read, yes, Dave, learn and profit from the Bible even as they continue to wrestle with some of its concepts. Mm-hmm. One possibility I urge them to consider is that the passage that bothers them might not teach what it appears that, to be teaching. Many of these have been cleared up by decent commentary that puts the issue in historical context. So 
There you go. If there is a passage that seems disturbing and anti-female, like different laws about you yeah. know, chattel slavery or whatnot, you're just not reading it within you're the proper context. Right, right. You're reading it wrong. You have to read it with the eyes of faith, context. right? Read it with and the eyes it, of faith. And incidentally, yeah. if you go into specific cases of this, I mean, I, I got this all throughout my education at, at Grace Bible mm-hmm. College and Cornerstone University. I can't tell you how many hours and hours and hours of lecture I heard um, – Finding some way to prove from the historical context that Paul wasn't really talking about what Paul seems to be talking about, only to refute it all with a single verse. Corinthians 11.3, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So they set up a God to Christ to church in the same way that it should be man to woman to child. Right, right. Or elsewhere he'll say – he'll talk about why men are fit to rule over women and he'll bring it all the way back to Adam and Eve because Eve sinned first Eve in sinned the garden. First. That's often referred to as that uh, because – yeah, uh, Genesis 3.17. Then to Adam God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Yeah. The feminist side will say, well, look at the historical context of the, the women entering Paul's churches in in the Roman world. Uh, some of them must have thought they worshipped the goddess. Some of them thought that women should be dominant to men. So Paul is really just has these women in mind. He doesn't have all women in mind. It's just meant that in these churches, women shouldn't usurp men's authority or or, or they don't have in authority which case, over the man. Let's assume that all of Paul's letters were written specifically to the people they were written to and hold no relevance to us anymore and therefore we well, can right. get rid of them. But see, so you can look at the historical context and try to concoct a reason why it doesn't apply. But the very verses themselves give Paul's rationale nope. for why. And it's tied into things like God's intent in creation – uh, or God's idea of where authority comes from. Now, they also refer, though, to often Christian feminists refer specifically to Jesus' pattern of being, befriending or, or giving power to women. And so they point out, for example, who were the yeah. people to witness the resurrection? It was Mary Magdalene. And, well, and now, which that, gospel. I, that I think is legitimate. I do, I do think overall the gospels show uh, a much more feminist bent or early than you'd expect. Leaders to see of at early the time. churches sure. with the apostles, much more so women than Paul. And, uh, yeah. 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 For example, you know the story about is, is it Martha, uh, the the girl who's told to go into yes. the kitchen and and work instead of listening to Jesus, and Jesus says she should be at the feet of the teacher, learning, not so, doing house chores. And so Popping up perfume with her hair. No, that was that was the other. No, one. I, I do agree that on average the, the the gospels have a much better view of women than you'll find in the epistles or that you'll find in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, the, some of the other research I looked at shows that the uh, it's actually more complicated than just you know more religion is more anti-female. What they uh, what some of the studies actually find is that there's a particular combination that that's nasty, and that is when the man and I'm talking spouses here when the male partner has significantly more traditional views on gender than his wife. Mm-hmm. So when the, when the studies have actually, empirical studies have looked at matching, uh, it appears to go just fine and there's not a lot of things like domestic violence or unhappiness when both the male and the female, the husband and wife, have similar views about They're on the same page about what their roles are. Even if it's a submissive wife, dominant husband, yeah. at least they agree that those are the... Right, because and, – and they often justify that by, you know, she's agreed to take up her roles among domestic things. Yep. He's agreed that beforehand. Absolutely. And there's no conflict. But the, She knows her place. Uh, one of the other empirical studies I, I read, uh, and this is the – this is uh, Ellison and Bartkowski and Anderson found that actually and, – and this – overall, they find like, like more church attendance, for example, is linked to lower domestic abuse because they're more integrated within a social group. But here's mm. the bad combination. What they found, what the study found was is that when you had male – when husbands had high traditional gender role views and they were paired with a wife that maybe is not on the same page with that or more liberal views, right. there was actually a – those men were at risk for spousal abuse, mm. which mm. again stands to reason that, that when you have an uppity type female challenging those things, it doesn't make for a good combination and the guys resort to – Did you say the men were at risk for spousal abuse? Well, that, that at risk for men were The women are beating them? Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. man, he's all I over know me. what you meant. I you just, know what I meant. God, everybody I, else gets to make stupid I, jokes about I'm unfunny at risk things. For being yelled at. I was going to clarify That's the same a, thing. Can't but, I okay. make an insensitive joke I'm at risk for being yelled at by you. You're pressing me. You could see how that would work, and that is, is that the men who have high traditional gender role views are socialized to resort to these heavy-handed tactics when they encounter a non-traditional female. Right. And actually, some of the cross-cultural studies find that too. For example, I, I found a study in, that was done among uh, Muslims in Turkey, and again, they found that 
uh, men and women actually shared a certain amount of what they call benevolent sexism. That is, women are different in different ways. They're to be protected. That's so it's why not actually discuss. really all that benevolent. But, but women did share men's views on the non-benevolent type of sexism, the type of stuff we were talking about, like women are somehow sneaky or that they are, you know, sexually, uh, per, they, they entice men. Mm-hmm. Men tend to hold those views rather than Muslim women. But they did tend to share the views, at, that, again, that traditional females, men tended to be more positively inclined towards it's just kind of like if you studied history in the in the catholic church the virgin whore dichotomy yes that that they don't mm-hmm. hate all women but what they do is they hate non-traditional women uh mm-hmm. the more traditional men get the more they're they idolize the virginal type traditional women just like ma mm-hmm. but what but but what religion tends to do is promote the suspicion of those uppity non-traditional women among the traditional men mm. So it's not an overall blanket like they just hate women just because they have two X chromosomes. But right. the, it's a more of a thing of yeah, as long as they stick to their roles, domestic roles, you know, and then fit the certain stereotypes, they're okay. Finally, one of the other studies I looked at showed that there are differences among things like egalitarian relationships within the marital uh, partnership. And that is things like one of the studies looked at domestic housework done by evangelicals and, and found that the, that, that the men, evangelical versus not evangelical men, didn't really differ in how much work they did around the house. They're all pretty lazy. But they found that the, in evangelical households, the women actually did, uh, did more housework and, and chores and things like that. And there is an educational difference, too, and that is that we know that more fundamentalist women have lower education levels. How is this affected by more women entering into the workforce? I, I remember my childhood growing up in in church you know there there were a lot of uh a lot of women were going back to work. You yeah. know, they needed two incomes to support the family. And I remember that there were occasionally debates about it. You know, nobody ever got up to the pulpit and said, this is wrong. But there were there were some people who were looked down upon as that that not being the right thing. Yep. And others argued that that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, she is supporting her family by going back to work. How, how does that affect? I, th- I think in sociology and anthropology, they're having this discussion now about the – because unemployment is higher uh, uh, for now for men than for – they're harder hit now in the economy because men tend to do more of the jobs that are – kind of like manufacturing and construction. A lot of the resurgence of like among conservatism might be attributed to men trying to take back their loss in power relative to women. That is when you look at things like the uh, like uh, traditional religion and even like the politics and politics like the the, the angry white male stereotype now, the Tea Party or guy who shouts about health care. Mm-hmm. A lot of the anthropologists are looking at that as a, as a outcropping of threatened men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that our women are getting more educated. They're actually taking jobs that are not the grunt jobs that I thought was just a, my birthright. I'm losing my job at the factory. And so they get scared and retreat to this hunker down conservative type position of get back in the house. Mm-hmm. Although it's not specifically tied to religion. You know, we've talked on the show before about like different birth rates and things like that. Um, an interesting case is let's take like Germany. It's pretty secular, but they have a high stereotype of women as being if you can choose a career and that's fine. You can see their prime minister mm-hmm. is Angela Merkel, but she's childless. If you choose to raise kids, then don't work and you should stay at home. Hmm. They even have a name for that. They call them uh, Raven's Mothers or Ra- Robin Mutter, that, that, that women who work and don't pay enough attention to their kids in home in the nest. The raven you know, kicks the, hmm. neglects the kids. And so that's a not from a religious perspective, but it's from a societal tradition that – Yes, women, you can work and get educated, and, but you need to make a choice. Do is that, it, is it or that have women are the ones that have to, like, would they be against a, a male staying yes. at home and doing that? Yeah. Well, as long uh, as it's a cultural thing, it's totally okay. Yeah. Well, we, I, I guess what I was trying to say is we always blame religion for that, but there are cultural differences. If you look at other secular countries, like uh, we always hold these up to a, as being the goal, but in mm. Scandinavia, like Sweden, sure. there's not even a lot of marriage. There's a lot of couples just just live together, but their partnerships are long lasting and it's incredibly egalitarian. Right. Uh, men are expected to uh, to have leave from uh, uh, paternal leave just as oh, much yeah. as women are. Well, right? even in France, they get um, a month or more off for paternity leave. Yeah, so if you look for these amazing. like a totally egalitarian model, probably the closest you're going to get are like the Netherlands and Sweden and right. Denmark because they – you know, this, the society as a whole has instituted that uh, that that both parents are interchangeable, and that one will right. work, the other stays home. But it doesn't matter what sex they are. And these are also countries where gay marriage is is often. So you're saying it caused it? We've yes. gay marriages have caused <laughs> the collapse of the family. I need That's to right. get targeted for for some sort of uh, thought crime because 
I think the only way that they accept immigrants, right, is through asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we trump up some charges where they'll, they'll send Jeremy to Sweden? And... I need to cook, cook up some sort of reason to get accepted in. Yeah. I don't want to learn like Icelandic. It's too difficult, but uh, I think I could handle Sweden. So the uh, I think a lot of these things, I guess, just to sum up, is that we tend to uh, – religion seems suspiciously correlated, although it might not often be the cause of all traditionalism and patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But like we were saying before, it sure tends to perpetuate it, though. Right. Mm-hmm. When somebody can refer in a book to a scriptural passage, they don't have to worry about the argument on its own merits. So maybe it's not the case that 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 uh, religion makes people conservative and oppress women as they might not have done otherwise. But what it does tend to do, I think the evidence shows, is that that is that they are more resistant to change because they can simply refer, just become lazy and refer to scriptural and traditional support for their worldview. They can just say, well, it's the way God wanted it. What are you going to do? Okay, we're going to wrap up here with another stranger than fiction. JesusIsAJerk.com. You need to check out this website, JesusIsAJerk.com, okay? Only it's not Jesus is a jerk, it's JesusIsAJerk.com. This guy created this website back in 2006 because he believed that um, the guy who uh, – that did his gardening um, was uh, plowing his wife. Yeah. And his name jokes, jokes about like the planting of seeds and the fur, <laughs> laying in a furrow of his name is Jesus. So he set up the website Jesus in order to get this guy's picture out there, hopefully ruin his business. And quote, the idea was to get Jesus's face all over the Internet to ruin his gardening business and to invite people to punch the ass hat in the face on sites. <laughs> <laughs> Let's first say look, we we shouldn't be naive here. I mean that might not have been the original <laughs> intent at all, but this is how he's putting it together, yes. and it's funny. So it's regardless. what's on the website now. The result has been that he's been flooded with hate mail from Christians because, of course, it, they're he's reading. Thank God the guy was a gardener, a, a not jerk. a carpenter. That would have been even worse. And, and he Read says he says here um, uh, the main points are in a nutshell. One, Jesus and Jesus are two different people. Two, I was mad at Jesus because it looked like he was going above and beyond the call of duty with my wife. Three, I'm not mad at your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, if he exists, I'm sure is a nice guy that would that would never bone another guy's wife. <laughs> and finally, even though Jesus wasn't doing the nasty on my property, I still wouldn't cry if the Romans crucified him. <laughs> oh, that that's good. Uh, an exercise in careful reading, uh, <laughs> hate mail writing Christians, please. Jesus is a jerk. Jesus probably not boning his wife. And that's going to do it for us this week. Oh, uh, we should t- mention the uh, donation. Yeah, yeah, we should. One way you can support us is by going to doubtcast.org and clicking on the donation button. Yes, we finally we put a donate button on the page. We've actually gotten a number of letters from listeners saying, "Hey, yes, yes. other podcasts yeah. a- actually well, saying we too. want to donate to this podcast and we don't know how." Yes, and um, since you begged us, we'll let you send us money. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's if you insist. Oh, okay. We did spend a lot of money over the past three years doing this uh, on on a field recorder that was about seven hundred dollars. That's, that's gotten we, a lot of use. Right. We had a we have a soundboard that was around uh, two hundred dollars or so that melted down. I'd like to it get is. a new one for the podcast so we can do more panel interviews and mm-hmm. and field field recordings. There's always things like cables. Uh, a microphone that is not WPRR's property but is uh, Reasonable Doubt's property would be nice. So we have practical things that we want to use uh, this money for. And and, uh, and if anybody is willing to help support us doing that, uh, we would very much, very much appreciate your help. Yeah. And, and perhaps it. with your help at some point um, – uh, some of us might make it out to TAM or some of the other um, 
conventions oh, yeah, and, that's, and that's conferences. To fund a roving reporter. That would be – that's kind of the ideal, Should I we guess. sweeten the pot? Like if you send over uh, $100 or something, we'll send you nude pictures of Fluke or something? Yeah. No, we want people to donate, not to deter them from that. <laughs> no, well, I think the best idea is to have whoever sends the most money gets to name Dave's kid. <laughs> <laughs> But what if only one person donates and it's a buck? (laughs) Then years from now, there'll be a good story to tell little Theodosius. (laughs) Little Xavier. I already have a friend who wants to name her Galactus. So, you know. Anyway, uh, that's uh, another way, of course, you can support the show is by writing us a review on iTunes or sharing the show with a friend. Check out our best of episodes available on WPRR's website, publicrealityradio.org. And until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. I think you should name her Optimus Prime. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 